today on Ag News Daily. One of the benefits of the Firestone Ag family is we have a large dealer network and a large um, service servicing fleet out there. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Friday episode here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by guest host and a voice I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Angie Setzer. Angie, how are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How is your podcast going? You have the Girls Talk Ag podcast, of course, and folks should check it out if they're not already listening to it. Yes, it is going well. Uh, last week we discussed um, the Green New Deal, so mm. that was always, it's always fun to talk about something. One of the things that we like most about our our podcast is we call it it almost like coffee with the the girls, or some folks on Twitter will say it's like having a beer with us at the bar, which there is probably go. more accurate than the coffee. But uh, so we get to sit down, and, and one of the fun parts is, is is you know tackling a subject that we may not otherwise really spend much time on. Like mm-hmm. obviously the Green New Deal, you, you look at it, you try to figure out what it is, but you know to do a podcast on it, you have to be able to explain it to someone else too. So. Right. It's been interesting to, to, you know, really get to learn a lot of that stuff. We've spent time, you know, looking over GMOs and food labeling and talking about how to reach the consumer and just a lot of those types of subjects. And then obviously, too, on the, the side, we like to sprinkle in a little of what it's like to, to be a hot mess mom and ag <laughs> where, you know, my friend friend Jen the other day said that uh, she accidentally pledged herself instead of breathing herself after hauling hogs. <laughs> oh, and no. That's just... That is our way of life. So, so yeah. So it's it's a lot of fun. We we have a a great time and you know, appreciate all our our listeners tuning in for sure. Absolutely. And actually, speaking on the Green New Deal, there was a little bit of news that came out today and and earlier this week. We're seeing kind of the Green New Deal teed up to be debated yeah. in the Senate yeah. after they return from recess this week. Yeah. It looks like they're definitely going to put some feet to the fire on that side. And, and it, you know, it's not surprising. There's some some conversation about, you know, the veterans in the Senate it, aren't necessarily supportive, I guess you could say, of, mm-hmm. of some of the points in the legislation. And at the same time, you know, there has been some conversation about whether or not uh, they're really um, enjoying all of the attention the, the rookie senator is, is bringing, you know, to herself and, and to the party as a whole. And so there's been some question that I've seen anyway, you know, kind of like, oh, well, let's see, let's sink or swim. You know, you, mm-hmm. you want to put this out there? You want to say how great it is? Let's let's see what it looks like. Let's put her up for a vote. And so it'll, it, it'll be interesting. Definitely from what I've seen on it, you know, it's a lot of uh, um, superfluous, you know, wording, like stuff that obviously folks can't, uh, can't argue with in some ways. And that's, we talked about it on the, the podcast where it it starts to talk about, you know, helping everyone, like just going through this whole entire uh, verbiage that, you know, obviously everyone's going to be like, yeah, that sounds great. But at the same time, it's it's nearly impossible for any piece of legislation to make actually happen. So um, it's concerning in the sense that just the same way that that carbon credits and those types Mm -hmm. of things, anytime you you try to legislate, um, human behavior and obviously there's certain realm and this like I said we talked about it a lot on the podcast too there's there's certain pieces that you know tend to be common sense and and you know obviously we want to to practice you know sustainability or or live lives that 
you know, you, you do want to limit your carbon footprint if you're able to, but that's just being, you know, a good steward of the earth. That's not something that should be legislated or mm-hmm. anything of that nature. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely interested to see what the debate will look like. It, it does make me a little nervous that we do have, you know, some folks out there that think that they have to, to uh, put the hammer down, so to speak, on, on what has been, the biggest thing, obviously, is the livestock portion of it. But um, it'll be interesting to see what the conversation and the debate looks like and, and what our our farm groups will say if, if things start to intensify and it looks as though we'll, we will see a vote on that. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing we're kind of just watching here, another piece of the puzzle really we're watching. And I think another one rural America is watching really closely right now, Angie, is, of course, what's going on with, with China. And I want to get to that in a second. But also what's going on with the EU trade, um, President Trump mm-hmm. kind of raised the stakes at between the U.S. and the EU, threatening to, quote, tariff a lot of their products coming in and also warned that, quote, if they don't talk to us, we're going to do something that's going to be pretty severe economically. We've already seen tariffs on European steel and aluminum. We're now seeing lawmakers kind of warning Congress, warning that Congress would not approve of a trade pact if it doesn't include agriculture. And on Thursday, 114 House members signed a letter to U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer urging him to insist that agriculture be included in these trade talks. So we see, again, Congress trying to to make these decisions or get their hand in the pie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting to see that I I you bring it up and you know I'll be completely honest I had not paid much attention to those those headlines so I should mm-hmm. have but I did have an interesting conversation yesterday with a a soybean exporter that I work with because in the you know in, in the Michigan market structure a lot of times um at harvest especially we tend to load boats out of the Toledo ports and send them um overseas uh, some of the bigger customers obviously being Europe this right. past fall um, they were the ones that really kind of kept the support underneath the market structure that mother nature, you know, not allowing for bean harvest to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took two months, three months, but uh, the conversation yesterday, you know, we were talking about new crop bean bids and, and what we were looking at because we were, we're looking at a new crusher coming online here in the state. Uh, but the question is, do they come online before or after harvest is, is started and finished? And, you know, so obviously we have to start evaluating what the market structure looks like for new crop and where we should be from a bid standpoint and things of that nature. And uh, I was talking to him yesterday about it, and he said the the biggest concern they have right now is, you know, China is is obviously not in the market. You know, they don't tend to to show their hand very soon. And and with everything being up in the air on the Chinese trade talks, they're not even looking for, for offers at this point. And Mm -hmm. so we're relying really heavily upon that European market. And right now, same story, like they're not even talking um, about making purchases at this point. They said that the, the bid bid that they would buy, you know, put on the boat in Toledo is, is 85 under or something of that nature. And and right now the bid, you know, posted by this exporter is, is 50 under. So if, even if they were to try to commit to something, you know, from a trade standpoint with, with a, a member of the, the EU over there, um, you know, they'd be locking in a loss without even co- factoring in cost of loading or anything like that. So it, it's really skewed the market structure. And I think you'll continue to see that set up as well, you know, with some of this uncertainty. And that that is kind of concerning. 
you know, we are seeing, and I think that might have been why we saw some positive moves, you know, in wheat, other than the fact that eventually you just run out of selling. Yeah. But uh, we did see Lighthizer talk about Japan, too. So, right. I mean, we really have um, this huge amount, and I, I say it during my marketing meetings a lot of times, um, you know, global competition. So, I was always under the assumption that global production competition in agriculture stemmed you know, almost entirely from the higher prices we saw from about 2007 to 2013, mm-hmm. you know, that the that it encouraged more production, things of that nature, which is, is true to a certain extent. But now we are starting to see these traditional U.S. companies discovering that their margins are better in these other countries, obviously, because they're introducing new technology and they're uh, building infrastructure and, you know, things of that nature. And so, obviously, if if they're looking to really be working in these foreign countries and and getting used to this increase in margin, you know, outside of the U.S., this global competition isn't going anywhere. And Mm -hmm. that puts all of that, you know, more importance upon, you know, what we're seeing happen with these trade discussions. So it's definitely something that we'll want to be watching with the EU and Japan. And, you know, China gets all of the attention, but we still don't have the USMCA confirmed by Congress yet either. So. <laughs> I, I think this was interesting to me in the headlines today. I know poultry isn't something that we trade necessarily on the commodity markets, but we see China lifting its ban on U.S. chicken right now. We saw confirmation um, from U.S. export sales that they're increasing their pork production or their pork imports from the United States. They also uh, increased cotton imports from the United States, but we saw them import about 23,800 metric tons of China, and now we're seeing them lift this ban on U.S. chicken. To me, it appears that African swine fever is finally becoming a story. I mean, for so long, we were watching Mm -hmm. it, we were factoring it into the markets, but we didn't really see them follow through and purchase pork, and we don't have a trade deal in place, and yet they are buying U.S. pork, and now they're lifting... Um, their ban on U.S. chicken. Angie, is that what that indicates to you as well, that maybe we are finally seeing African swine fever become worse than than what the Chinese maybe originally led on us to believe? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think part of it was they were able to, I mean, because African swine fever does not affect a, a human when consuming it. So, you know, the pork that you have at the store I'm not saying here in the U.S. I'm talking, and when I say you, I mean a, a customer in China, if he's going to the store or a market or whatever, um, it's not as though they necessarily are taking into consideration what that supply looks like. Now, obviously, uh, the Chinese, you know, have said that they, you know, they're not putting that type of, if they're calling the hog, it's not going into the pipeline, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, is their cash price really wasn't showing that there was a decrease uh, yeah. in, in production until you know, just recently, um, there was a, a big push. There were a lot of folks that were saying that there was this huge push um, of, of supply. I mean, it was actually one of those things in December where people were scratching their heads trying to figure out, okay, ASF's been here for three months now, or four, since August, and they're still saying that there's plentiful supply, the port, pr- the cash price is cheap, the movement is, is, you know, more than enough to satisfy demand. And now we're starting to see that that could have had something to do with the fact that they you know, were maybe they weren't calling hogs that were sick, but maybe you were seeing some liquidation of stocks mm. in order to avoid the disease and subsequent calling of the hogs. So we did see today, you know, that China had cut uh, 
they estimate, and this was news from China, so imagine how much worse it could be based right. on the fact that they don't <laughs> typically, you know, they don't typically you know, let air all of their dirty laundry. Uh-huh. You know, official information was that the, the uh, hog herd itself was down 16.6% from last oh, wow. February with the sow, the sow herd down 19.1%. That's a decrease of 5% on both sides there from January. So you saw a significant reduction, you know, just from January 31st through the end of February, but an amazing reduction. So, you know, if you look at 433 million head of hogs, which is what the Chinese are estimated to have, and you take 16.6% of that, you know, away, you just reduce the the hog herd by about 72 million heads. Right. So obviously... You know, it, the hog herd itself is is something that's concerning. What the biggest concern is is the sow depletion. That, I'm I'm um, a little because I'm a little surprised yeah. by that. So they they said that they're down 19 percent. 19.1 percent is what the official data was. Is it on because, the, the sow herd? Is it because they're just not keeping sows as long? Are they culling sows? I mean, all the reports that we've heard from African swine fever have said they've culled herds by like what, one and a half million heads. So how are they figuring out this yeah. 19% number? Is a reduction. Honestly, the article from Reuters did not go too far in depth. Uh-huh. It was just a report based on the what was coming out of the, the China Ministry of Agriculture there. And it was discussed, uh, you know, in depth there in, in Twitter land, more so because obviously that con- is considered bullish hogs. But mm-hmm. the question is, is that bearish or bullish for meal? Right, and so you can flip a coin on that side because obviously, if if the Chinese, you know, hog population is that much lower, then they're not needing to feed it, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, at the same time, if China's going to be taking in a lot of our poultry, if we start to see them take in beef, if they are taking in, I mean, this this week they took in nearly half of the pork exports that we reported, the export sales, you know, and that's without with the tariff still in place. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, we obviously are going to have a lot more mouths to feed if we see that continued increase in, in export demand. So, you know, it's it, it's it's an interesting thing across the board, um, you know, and it is concerning on the soybean side of things, um, but it is very interesting on the, the pork side of things yeah. because we've seen record production and lukewarm demand, and that's really what's been slamming this market down over the last several years. And, and now we're, we're seeing a significant turnaround and and uh, what we had anticipated to have happen, you know, with this disease that is spreading like wildfire. Yeah, and we're finally seeing the hog markets react. And I want to get to the markets here in just a minute, but I thought the last piece of news we probably needed to touch on was all the flooding that's going on. We've seen parts of Missouri, the Missouri River increased uh, flooding warnings on Thursday night. The Army Corps of Engineers is getting involved now and recommending folks, um, you know, stay off certain roadways. We've seen dams and watersheds being affected by this. Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, I think the Dakotas are feeling a little bit of that heat as well. Andrew, are you feeling any of that effect uh, from flooding in Michigan yet? We're fortunate. No, we're we're okay. not seeing, I won't even hold a, a candle or say that, you know, I mean, is it a little wet up here? Sure. Uh, there's some areas up north of here that are dealing with, um, you know, the flooding over roads, some road closures, things of that nature. But, you know, we did not have the snowpack mm-hmm. that they did out west. 
And we didn't get hit with the storm system near as bad as what they did out west either. Okay. So we, you know, yesterday, I don't I don't have my rain gauge out yet, obviously, because we're still in that thaw and freeze sort of cycle. But, you know, I, I wouldn't say we got, you know, maybe a, a half an inch, maybe a bit more than that, because I'm a bad estimator. And it would come in downpours, but it wasn't a long-lasting sort of rain. So we're very fortunate here. I would say we're nowhere near... I mean, maybe not even close compared to out west, but, um, you know, seeing some of those pictures that are coming out of Nebraska and, and Iowa and the Dakotas and, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere, it just absolutely, you know, breaks your heart. And yeah. if you look at uh, yesterday, um, there was something posted. It was really interesting. It actually showed, you know, what we were looking at when it came to um, moisture here. And so we had... Uh, January 1 through March 14th, basically, you're looking at the wettest um, first quarter, you know, from across the Illinois River to the Missouri River, you know, throughout much of Iowa, parts of Illinois, almost all of Wisconsin. Wisconsin's one of those places we we barely ever talk about, and they were losing buildings, you know, nearly daily because of the snowpack being so heavy. Minnesota was experiencing the same thing. And, you know, what's most concerning to me is that a lot of those areas to the north haven't necessarily seen you know, that snow melt as, as much as what some of the areas to the south have. And so, you know, even with the, the drier forecast here over the next, for the most of the northern Corn Belt for the next, you know, week to to 10 days, if we see some warm up in temperatures, which I think is expected, you know, you're going to continue to have that excessive amount of moisture running into the, the tributaries and the rivers. And so it's, it's very, very concerning that it's, you know, it's, it's only just begun in some spots. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we saw some excitement in the commodity markets for today. Folks, of course, our monstered, markets are sponsored by our partners over at the Zaner Group. You can get a hold of them at 312-277-0050. Angie, a lot of strength on the board today. Starting out in the May corn contract, we saw it up three cents at 373 and a quarter. The December up two cents at 396 even. What's going on in the soybean pits today? We saw the March contract up ten and three quarters cents. The November up nine and three quarters cents. Little positivity, but I yeah. why? A lot of positivity, and if you figure it out, let me know. I'm not going to complain <laughs> though. That it's a lot easier to have a head scratcher when the market's green than like it's been on wheat for the last three weeks here. So I think there's still some positive ideas. You know, it's like we talked about there with the ASF and the increase in potential demand for you know, U.S. protein elsewhere. We saw crush come in, you know, a little bit lower than anticipated, but the market, Mm -hmm. the traders were expecting an absolute record crush number, Um, you know, and it still came in at a a pretty lofty level, about a million bushel higher than what we had seen last February. Um, So so it's still a a pretty strong number. And I think there's some optimistic um, ideas coming out of these Chinese trade talks as well. There was a headline this morning that said that, that Trump and, and President Xi will be meeting sometime in April. So yesterday it was April or later, and now it's mm. sometime in April. So, you know, I think after a while, Charlie and, you know, Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, <laughs> you'd think you'd stop trading on those. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we, we have seen a, a range-bound trade really shape mm-hmm. up in soybeans here. If, if you're paying attention, you know, if you're keeping score at home, the front month, which now the May is the front month, obviously, has really liked to trade between about eight, 9893 and about 925 or so. Um so we did see the board kind of bottom out in that lower 890, you know, range there on the May and has bounced back a little bit. 
November, same story, 925 to about 965 or so. So we're watching to see if we're going to get some, some strength on that side. But I think it just likes to do it because it gets to watch Twitter fight about how teams <laughs> are not bullish and shouldn't be rallying, but it's still here. So there you go. Um, you know, we'll take it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. We'll also take the rebounds we've been having in the wheat market. The May contract today closed up nine and a half cents at four sixty two and a quarter. The July up eight and a half at four sixty eight and a quarter. Hopping over into the livestock pits, a lot of strength across the board, especially in the lean hog markets. They had an exciting day today. April live cattle contract up a dollar seventy at one twenty nine ten. The June up a dollar fifty seven and a half at one twenty one ninety two and a half. The feeder cattle pits, the March contract up 22 and a half cents on the day at 141, 32 and a half. The April up $2 and 27 cents at 146, 92 and a half. And the lean hog markets, April contract put on $3 on the board at 68.80. The May up $3 at 77.90. Now, Angie, for today's interview, we're still a little ways out from planting, but I think it's that time when producers are starting to be cognizant of getting machinery ready, getting equipment ready, and also getting tires ready. So we're chatting with Brad Harris from Firestone Ag to chat about making sure tires are ready to go here before spring planting season rolls around. Well, chatting with Brad Harris today, who is the manager of Firestone's field engineering team, the agricultural field engineering team. Brad, that's quite the title. Tell us what that title means. Well, thanks for having me on today, Delaney. Um, what what I do for Firestone Ag is I lead the team that's in charge of a lot of the technical questions that the end users may have, the farmers, um, John Deere's and the cases of the world. So we work with people that have uh, product questions uh, we work with our technical team in Akron, Ohio, that designs the tires, and we place new tires into the market that they want to get some idea if uh, a new construction is going to work or new compounds will work. So we'll place those with customers, and then we go and we report on that. So every six to nine months, we'll go out and inspect those tires and report back to the team what's going on. Uh, and we, we also support our sales force. So our regional sales managers will, will go visit a dealer and a dealer may have a question and, and we have to go and, and help that dealer out if they've got specific questions. So there's four of us in, uh, in the North American area that uh, take care of all this stuff. So our plates get pretty darn full in oh, yeah. certain times of the year trying to manage all that. Absolutely. And not only that, but you're also, you also actively farm. Is that right, Brad? That's correct. Uh, I live and still um, practice farming in the hometown where my, let's see, I'm a fourth generation farmer. So a couple great grandfathers ago stopped in this area and uh, continue to farm the, the main farm. And uh, my father and I, we, we, currently run just shy of 800 acres together. That's a lot on your plate to have such a important role in Firestone's company and also continue to be actively farming. How do you bring that background of farming into 
into the business with you at Firestone of creating or implementing products that work for farmers? A lot of the time it comes down to just helping other people within the corporation understand the the complexity of agriculture. And the, the biggest term that I like to use when talking to the people that come into the business that may not have any ag experiences is no two farm operations are the same. Um, my dad and myself, yes, we farm together. We have very similar sized tractors, but the way he uses his tractor is different than mine. So helping people understand the impact of maybe a, a design change or a, a new line of tires, uh, how, that, that, how that could impact um, not just one customer, but a multitude of customers. So the ag background that I have, again, it's primarily focused on production uh, row cropping, but I can help others within the organization see um, what the main driving influences may be for a product and the, a problem that maybe I might not see in my operations, I understand how another operation could have have an issue with uh, the way a, a product may look or may have may perform on their their farm. Absolutely, that makes sense. So obviously, as you mentioned, every farm is different. Every farmer's choice in tires is probably different depending upon the area or the landscape that they're in. But Brad, how do you suggest farmers going about buying tractor tires or truck tires to fit their area or their operation the best? It comes down to a couple major items to consider for that operator or that customer. And first is the dealer. Um, If you have a strong dealer in your area uh, that you're comfortable to work with, um, that that gets you the right product and the right service. Uh, that's the first thing I always encourage customers to to focus on. And one of the the benefits of the Firestone Ag family is we have a large dealer network and a large um, service servicing fleet out there of independent uh, owner operators that can can help uh, customers find the right product. Um, comes down to training too uh, and the education and and Firestone we pride ourselves on we don't want to just tell customers that they have to buy our product we want to to help customers set up the product that they have to be most profitable and then when it does come down to time to either order a new tractor specify Firestone tires on there or if they're replacing tires uh, knowing that the the knowledge and the information that they've been taught came from Firestone. So let's um, let's look at the Firestone product to help help with what they're trying to do. So Brad, I guess really going off of that, the bulk I think of what we need to chat about today is we're in this period. Folks aren't quite getting into the fields, but we've got planting here on the horizon. I know a lot of farmers are chomping at the bit to get maybe some of that field work they didn't get done in the fall done. They're eager and ready to get into the field. What should they be thinking from from an equipment standpoint and more specifically from, you know, a tire standpoint to make sure that they have maximum time and and don't have any little hiccups once they are able to finally get into the fields? Right. And 
as we have our equipment into the shops, um, it's the perfect time to do a, a quick 10 to 15 minute inspection on the tires on each one of our uh, equipment that we're going out into the fields. Um, we kind of did a little study last year to look at what an hour of downtime cost a farmer in terms of, of yield loss. And based on average yield, based on some delayed planting yield loss data that uh, Pioneer hybrids had out there, we calculated for every hour you're sitting, there's a potential of losing $615 wow. of, of cost, of, of profit from that. Yeah. So on, on firestoneag.com's website, we've got a seven-step checklist uh, for customers to, to look to use when they're inspecting the tires. And again, everything on that checklist um, applies to any tires, so it doesn't matter the brand. Those items on that checklist are things um, to look for. Um, some of the major ones, it just comes down to cuts and snags on the sidewall and the tread of the tire. Um, Tires today take a lot of abuse from stubble. We're, we just grow healthy crops now, and, and that stubble attacks the product. As long as we're not seeing some of the cords or the fabrics inside the tire, we can have a tire that looks a little on the chewed-up side, but it's still going to perform in the field. It's not going to look pretty, but it'll perform. It's when we start seeing some of the fabric pieces inside of that tire uh, being exposed from stubble. That's the time to start um, making plans to purchase new tires to replace uh, those worn or damaged product so that we don't have some of those downtime in the field. So uh, it's just a nice, quick, easy step. There's also a video on the, the website if there's any questions on what are they saying in this Step, the seven checks step list item. Um, there's a nice little video there, kind of walks everyone through it. Brad, I want to go back to the, I, bet, I guess, knowing when it's time to maybe look at replacing tires. You, you mentioned the thread and the treads there. Is there a length of time on average when producers should be thinking, okay, I've had this tire for X number of years or growing seasons, maybe it's time for this year, I look at purchasing new tires? Unfortunately, when we come back to um, each farm being slightly different in the amount of hours that they put on equipment, uh, we don't. I don't recommend a time frame uh, when tires need to be changed. I always encourage customers to look at the amount of bar height that is left on that that particular product. So, if a tire is worn and uh, it maybe only has about 20% of the bar height left. That's about the time that I encourage customers to start really planning on purchasing new traction tires for their tractors. Um, in dry conditions, that um, reduced bar height, it's going to perform just fine. You're going to have the, the traction that you expect. It's in those wetter planting seasons or wetter harvest seasons because we don't have a that original skid depth left um, that we could lose traction or that tire easily muds up, balls up with mud, and we lose the traction in the field. So that's typically the the mark that I tell customers. If we've only got 20% of that bar height left, uh, it's time to start looking at replacements. 
Okay, and then along with that, um, you've got the seven steps there on the website, but what about proper tire pressure? How do I know if my tractor is too inflated or not inflated enough to get the optimum, you know, I guess, compaction and, and usability on that tire? No, that, good question. Very good question. And when we look at the agricultural market, we're the only market in the whole tire industry that encourage cu- customers to run the least amount of inflation pressure as, well, as possible because we're trying to minimize the soil compaction. So setting the proper inflation pressure in a tire comes down to knowing the axle load that that tire is being care- is requiring to carry and then uh, using uh, the data books, or if you go to firestoneag.com, we've got an inflation calculator on there where customers can type in the tire size, uh, if they're using singles, duals, or triples, place the axle load on there, and the calculator will tell us what that minimum inflation pressure is uh, for that particular piece of equipment. All right. That makes sense. And you mentioned limiting compaction there. How do we limit compaction from a tire standpoint? Obviously, you said we could use the least amount of PSI or the least amount of tire air in in there. But what else can you do from a tire perspective to limit compaction? Uh, From from the tire side of things, um, what we always want to try to do is have the biggest tire on that piece of equipment that allows us to, to do the job function correctly, fit in within, within our operation. Um, what we found is the inflation pressure inside of the tires is roughly the soil compaction that we're putting into the, to the ground. So if we have a tire that has about 15 PSI in it to do the operation, it's putting about 15 pounds of uh, pressure into the ground. If we've got 70 PSI in a tire, it's putting over 70 PSI of pressure into that ground. So that's why we've always encouraged customers to run the least amount of inflation pressure. From an agronomic standpoint, uh, fibrous roots like weeds and grass, they can grow through um, contact pressures that are in that 15 to 20 PSI range. When we get above that, that's when we start doing that that compaction layer that the crops can't easily grow through. So um, we just need to play with uh, the tire sizes and make sure that we've got a big enough tire on, on that piece of equipment or enough tires on that piece of equipment to minimize the pressure that we need to carry the load and minimizing that soil compaction. Absolutely. Brad, you mentioned quite a bit of resources today. I want to remind folks, how can they find not only the seven-step tire track, but also just information about Firestone and Firestone products in general? The quickest and easiest, of course, is going to firestoneag.com. On that website, we've got, again, what we offer for products, plus all these uh, helpful tools and resources. We've got a section on the website that's just called Tools and Resources, um, where we try to put some education out there to help customers understand what they can do to to maximize their operation with proper tractor setups and that seven-step checklist 
and the inflation calculator. So that's a good thing. Plus on the website, if you do have some specific questions, there's a, a contact us button there. You can write a quick uh, email to us uh, and the one of the four of us in the field engineering group will will read it and try to respond back uh, within a timely manner. Awesome. Brad, thanks so much for sharing Firestone's story with us today. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Delaney. All right, Angie Willigan, that was Brad Harris there with Firestone Ag. Angie, before we let you go, we have to, of course, share with folks, if they don't follow you on social media, don't listen to your podcast, or maybe just want to interact (laughs) with you on another level, how can they do that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Goddess of Grain, or you can email me at asetzer at citizenselevator.com. Awesome. Angie, with that, should we let everybody have a great weekend and let them go? Yeah, have a great weekend, everyone. Stay dry out there for sure. (laughs) 